Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Scott Wurzbacher. And today, we're going to talk about taking on a challenge, persistence, and setting new records. And for today's guest, this means setting the Guinness World Record for fastest paddle along the full length of the Mississippi River. This is going to be an epic episode. According to the Mississippi Speed Record website, people have been setting and breaking this record for fastest paddle down the Mississippi since 1937. The first time the record was set, it took the team 56 days to paddle the distance of over 2,500 miles. Scott Miller is with us today, and he is the leader of the Mississippi Speed Record team who made their attempt this year, 2023. He lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he's paddled over 8,000 miles in his lifetime. He's a registered nurse at the University of Minnesota Medical Center, and he's also a massage therapist. He lives with his wife and their cats just a few blocks from the Mississippi River. This is a story about using one's passion and gifts to take on a challenge, never giving up, and persisting until the goal is achieved. Scott, welcome to the campfire. Thank you. Man, I am so excited to hear the story there. And there's so much that goes into this. You and I had such a great conversation uh, a few weeks before uh, today when we're having this conversation. Um, for context for the listeners, could you give us a little bit of background of who is Scott Miller and how did this adventure spirit develop in you? Yeah, you bet. Depends on how far back we want to go. But uh, <laughs> I'm somebody that likes to look at the the patterns that come down through the generations. And uh, I won't get too far into it, but there was a time, uh, I don't know, 80 or 100 years ago or something when my my grandfather on the farm in Northern Iowa, his, his dad went to Northern Minnesota and fell in love with the pine trees and moved the family up there when my grandfather was just a teenager. So they there was a move towards recreation in the wilderness, you know, even back then. And then, interestingly enough, uh, their eldest son, my father, became a majored in forestry and became a, a worker for the uh, the Three Rivers Park District, which is the Hennepin County Park System. And it's it's um, it's on par with a lot of state park systems. It's just a it's it's had dedicated taxpayer funding for generations now. And so the facilities are just phenomenal. So I actually lived on a dirt road in the middle of this massively large, beautiful park in, in Hennepin County, which is the largest county in Minnesota, uh, for the first eight months of my life. The, the poison ivy vines grew six feet high in the back. And I don't remember this, but then we moved to a new development being built in the cornfield just to the east of this park. You know, it's all it's all within the safely within the suburbs at this point, uh, given 40 some years of development. But it's still a park that's like, I think it's 30 miles by 30 miles. So my dad uh, then got me in the scouts and uh, took me canoeing on the Minnehaha Creek, which is this 23 mile kind of like it's a small world type canoe ride. Uh, the water levels have to be right, but it's just filled with like rapids and lakes and golf courses and rich people's houses and poor people's houses and parking lots and little little lakes and bridges. And so it's just a thrill a minute for hours. And we, we went on that when I was a kid and it was just like really fun, you know. How how old are you at, when you took that trip? Eight, probably. Eight. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. We actually flipped, flipped to the canoe and my dad freaked out. My brother and I were floating in the creek and in the rapids and uh, all our stuff was floating down the creek. But, you know, we've no disaster, actually. I think the canoe actually snapped in half, and my dad had to fiberglass it back together later. So he, he was a little concerned, but we were wearing our life jackets, and all was well. Yeah, I love this. And I just, I have to say, so first of all, obviously, this is paddling in Minnesota or in your blood um, through generations. And I just, I have to add, um, and you and I shared this, but just to kind of remind listeners, like this whole podcast 
was really born and inspired out of a trip, a canoe trip that I took in the Boundary Waters of Minnesota. So near and dear to my heart here, um, that was sort of my first experience um, paddling and portaging. And um, yeah, just great stuff. And that's why I'm so excited about this story. Was there, um, so obviously it was in your blood, but do you, like, do you remember sort of a moment when you were like, you know, you just knew that, that, that this kind of a lifestyle was for you and that this was, this was something that was just a passion for you? Honestly, uh, I worked for the scouts when I, in my twenties and my best friend, Todd Foster and I ran a winter camp together. And as we were becoming kind of best friends, he had grown up in the scouts and done a lot more paddling than I had. And he said, Hey, we should go on a boundary waters trips. And I, and I had never been to the boundary waters. And I was like, yeah. So I started, I loved all the prepping and I got books on the boundary waters and books on the the different, you know, there's hundreds of different canoe routes. And I liked doing all the planning. We, we were independently poor in our, in our twenties. And, uh, I, uh, we planned a 10 day trip, you know, and it, it's like, well, all the food and all the gear, and we didn't have fancy gear at all, but it was like, this is an adventure, you know? And I think that my friendship with Todd, and then we started paddling on rivers and certainly, so it's from my friendship with Todd that I think it, the lifestyle was cemented. Yeah. 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 I love it. Okay. So how do you go from that to this decision that we're going to go for a world record? Well, so Todd and I, in 2003, uh, we were running this winter camp and part of the theme was to learn about winter explorers. So he was at the library researching winter explorers and he came across the book Canoeing with the Cree, mm. which is like the quintessential Minnesota adventure story written by Eric Severide about his trip from Minneapolis to Hudson Bay, where the polar bears live. And Todd read this book and he's like, we should do this trip. And so I was like, that's insane. I can't take an entire summer and just go off into the wilderness. And then I thought about it and I was like, well, you only live once. And uh, once I committed to it, you know, then it takes months and months. But once you commit yourself to a really big goal, I find that fascinating. You know, then everything starts to fall into place, but it takes that it takes that leap of faith to commit yourself to a big goal first. So in 2005, we did this grand expedition. It was not for speed, but it was a 2000 mile expedition from literally his backyard to literally where the polar bears live. So like from the very familiar to the very exotic, it was totally awesome. And then years went by and we used all the fancy gear we had gotten for that trip uh, to have fun on rivers and things, but never another grand voyage until 2018, I think, when I heard about some guys trying to set this record. I had never heard of this record before. I paddled on the Mississippi and knew how enjoyable it was. But what, as soon as I heard the record, it was it was like, I think I could do that. I, I, I'd never before in my life had I thought, I think I could do that. I, I could set a Guinness World Record. Turns out I was right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I loved that. When the first time you and I spoke, that really jumped out at me because you said, you know, I'm, I don't consider myself to be an elite athlete. But when I heard about this, I thought to myself, I can do that. And that just really, it really triggered for me. And, and, and as I've thought about it, I think that on some level, I had the feeling like when you do something long enough, the athletic piece of it is still really important, but the other pieces of teamwork and cooperation and planning and good communication and strategy, all of that becomes more and more important. And I thought, I think I can get myself in good enough shape and learn good enough paddling technique, like marathon paddling technique. And I think I are, I have a lot of these other skills around organization and teamwork. And, you know, I was thinking about it, it's like, you know, you can name, all of us can name dozens, if not hundreds of athletic accomplishments that the world pays attention to. Super Bowl winners, winner of the Tour de France, you know, Jonas Vingegaard, I was just watching the Tour de France. Um, but how many of us can name records for teamwork? Yeah. You know, and, and it's like, this was a way to sort of sneak, sneak that in, because I think that was the great strength of my team was, was our, not just our teamwork, but our, our community communication, our ability to be vulnerable and p lift each other up. Um, so I hope, I think we were modeling a different, not just a brute kind of, you know, competitive, like we're, we're just so genetically gifted and so strong that we can set this record through sheer athletic force. 
no, this was something a little different than that. Hey everyone, it's Scott here. This podcast is a passion project for me because I absolutely love adventure. And it's thanks to the effort of my residential real estate team here in Charlotte, North Carolina, that many of you know as the W Realty Group, that this podcast gets funded. This awesome group of people have unmatched levels of competence and caring for our clients. If you know of anyone looking to buy or sell a home, our team serves the Charlotte, North Carolina market, but we can also help you find an agent anywhere throughout the US or Canada through our highly connected network. When you support our real estate business, you are also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks for your referrals. Yeah, I mean, I love this. I want to get into this, like kind of the logistics and the and the adventure itself, this 2,500 mile journey. Um, but I want to go back to something that you said first. So when you were considering this trip up to the polar bears, you said that, you know, it's this three month journey and initially you thought I can't do that. It was just kind of like you read this book, but you're like, you kind of wrote it off. And then you said, wait a minute, you only live once. And so for that, there was this, um, no, I can't do that. And it took this sort of convincing. And then fast forward to the world record when you looked at it and said, I think I can do that. And I'm just curious sort of what changed in between the two, but I also am wondering like the thought process that you went through when like, how do you, how you got from, I can't to you only live once. Well, I think I was borrowing my friend Todd's confidence. I mean, he, at that time in particular, was able to think he had more confidence than I did and was able to, to have big outlandish thoughts and not immediately dismiss them, which I think is what a lot of us do and my, myself included. So I think I was borrowing from his confidence. I don't think I would, I would not have come up with that idea on my own ever in a million years. So it was the courage to say yes to his idea. And doing it with my best friend made that easier. But what I love about the world record attempt is that it was entirely my idea, <laughs> and um, uh, which was great for me. It's like, okay, I have developed some confidence that I didn't used to have, you know, that I could have this idea. And I don't think I would have developed that confidence if it wasn't for that earlier trip and just a lot of growth as a human being over the last, you know, 15 years. Um, and I sort of recognized it like, oh, you're having... You're having an idea that you could easily dismiss, but maybe don't dismiss it. Maybe, maybe stick with it. So did something change for you between that polar bear trip and this trip? I mean, I think, I think I, well, so on the polar bear trip, Todd actually got injured and I took on a much younger guy that we'd worked with at scout camp as his replacement. So, uh, so I had to step up and I think, having successfully completed that journey, I think that gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah. And then, um, and then in the intervening years, you know, just becoming an adult and overcoming different challenges, figuring out uh, vocation stuff. Um, frankly, the, I guess the other two big things that happened is shortly before this record attempt, like just in the last few years before the, the record attempt, I figured out a mid career switch. So I had been doing more random jobs, which was fine, but it wasn't a settled thing. And I, I became a registered nurse. And at nursing school, I met my wife. So I went from a life where I sort of depended on these adventures as like the thing that was the most meaningful thing. And maybe the rest of my life wasn't as fulfilling. Whereas now I, my whole life is fulfilling. And I feel like I have a good, well-rounded life. I have, a, I have a house, I have a wife, I have a good job. And, and the cool thing about this adventure was, okay, it's, it's short enough. Like if I can become in shape enough, we should be able to get it done in 17 days. I don't have to entirely disrupt my entire life to do this. Just build up enough time off that I can take, you know, excerpt it off. And yeah, so that was, it was kind of perfect. It was like, just when I figured out the rest of my life, then it was like, here's the perfect adventure that will fit into this life. Yeah. And I, I just have to stop and just honor something you said, you said my whole life is fulfilling. And this is like a whole thing you, you talked about your house and your wife and your career and this adventure and like the sense of fulfillment, but it's a whole fulfillment. And I just want to, I want to just take a second to honor that because I think that's amazing. It is. It's really wonderful. I think at the time of the Hudson Bay trip, it was like, sort of like, oh God, this amazing adventure is over. And now I have to go back to my regular life, which isn't as fulfilling and isn't as, I haven't figured that out. And so it's, 
it's nice to have figured life out a bit more and still be able to include adventure in it. It's not like I had to give it up, you know, to be able to have have your cake and eat it too. It's, yeah, it's, really a, nice. it's, a, it's a real both and. It's amazing. All right, yeah. Scott, there's a, there's a real story that goes into the evolution of this whole thing. And I want to hear the whole story and I want to listen to hear the whole story. Uh, again, for context, can you walk us through what it takes and what this, what, what this paddle kind of looks like? Can you kind of describe the, the journey itself? I mean, it is truly an epic adventure. I, I think it hits me in the same way that a JRR token, you know, like a grand epic voyage, like, you know, like Bilbo is leaving the, the, the Shire. Yeah, I love that. That's um, a great analogy. Yeah. And, and because the, the character of the river changes so much too, I love that. It's not, it's not just the same thing, particularly in the first four days. So I, I don't know. Um, I guess I could describe the river a little bit. Yeah, you know, please. It's, it's 2,300 miles. And the great thing is Minnesotans, we love our state and we love our 10,000 lakes, but we don't think about uh, as often the Mississippi river, which begins in Minnesota and of the 10 states that the river flows through the the most number of miles is in Minnesota. So it's it's really a big part of our state. If we didn't have 10,000 lakes, I think we'd be, maybe we'd call ourselves the start of the Mississippi state, you know, or something. Nice. So it's like almost 700 miles just in Minnesota because it curls around through so much of the state. And it starts in, you know, the Northern forest, the coniferous, you know, the same forest that's in Canada, that's in the Northern part of Minnesota. And I've, in my practice paddles i've heard wolves howling within the first hour mm -hmm. of the start from lake itasca which is this yeah. iconic location you know and it's pretty small it's just a little creek for the first 50 miles then you get to the first town which is the city of bemidji which is very much a forest town a lumberjack town there's a huge statue of paul bunyan and babe the blue ox there and it's it's very much on it's on lake bemidji in northern minnesota it's you know it's just very much a forest town and then you have three huge lakes you go through, and then you're still, you go through a big Indian reservation, you go through still pretty remote areas, and it's 500 miles until you get to the Twin Cities, 500 miles until you get to the commercial river. So a lot of people that live on the Mississippi from point south, they see barges, they see locks and dams, they think of it as a commercial, industrial, dangerous river, um, but there's 500 miles before you get to that section. So that's a whole four days, if you're going as fast as we were, of a certain kind of adventure. Then you hit Minneapolis and St. Paul. Now you're in the commercial area. You've got 29 locks and dams between Minneapolis and St. Louis. And it's a whole nother world. You've got uh, bluffs, beautiful bluffs. You go through this place called the Driftless region where the glaciers didn't go. Um, you've got these pools of water. They, every pool is numbered between the locks. So after you go through lock one, you're in pool one. Um, you go through Iowa. That's a whole journey in itself. Then you get to St. Louis, and then it's 1,000 miles of free-flowing river, no more locks and dams, but massive, massive barges. And some people describe that as the, the largest wilderness in the lower 48 because uh, it can be up to 70 miles wide between the levees, and it's 1,000 miles long. So it's just it's just extraordinary. Man, it's 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 crazy. And I want to hear some of the logistics. Okay, so one of the stats that's on the website, your website, is that the very first record was 56 days. And you already kind of let the cat out of the bag. I heard you say 17 days. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so how the heck do you get it from 56 to 17? And what does that look like? When do you sleep? When do you eat? What what does that look like for the team? Well, I mean, you know. I'm sure we'll get into this eventually, but a big part of the story is that it was originally going to be a two-year project and it turned into a five-year project that included two different attempts. So there's all kinds of reasons behind that, but that meant that the strategy that we were employing really changed and evolved over those five years through different training trips and the, the one attempt that was almost successful. Um, but where we landed for this trip, and we even learned things on this trip, is we had a 23-foot canoe. You can use any vessel you want. You can have any number of people you want, but you're limited by the size of the little creek that is the Mississippi for its first, first 50 miles. You couldn't, you couldn't take a boat much bigger than what we had. And the strategy we landed on was to have a canopy over our canoe in the center part of our canoe that one or two people could sleep in there. Oh, wow. So historically, when people would set the record, like 
for example, when it was set in 1980 or 81, those guys camped every night and they maybe only camped for four or five, six hours and then paddled all day. But our strategy was to sleep in the canoe and take turns sleeping in the canoe so that we could be on the water moving downstream, you know, 24 seven with, with just a, maybe an hour or two cumulatively on shore in, in any given day. Wow. That, that makes a lot of sense. And so that's, yeah. you know, so you, you essentially have two people paddling pretty much all the time. Right. And when we first started planning this, um, we were going to only ever have two people paddling and two people resting. And that changed so that, you know, for this journey, we had three people paddling the majority of the time. Um, at night for about eight hours, we would only have two people paddling and we'd switch halfway through. So everybody got about four hours an, at, at night to sleep. And then everybody got another three hours during the day, usually on average. So at various times, we had two, three or four people paddling. Yeah. Wild. All right. And so you said this ended up becoming a five-year project. And what I'm kind of hearing you say is that that five years gave you more time to essentially prepare and practice for the final go at it in 2023. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. I mean, it's just a crazy story. When, when I first heard about the record in 2018, three guys were attempting it. A guy named KJ Milhone who was like 58 or something at the time and two younger guys. Yeah. And they, they only made it to Iowa before they gave up. They just weren't fast enough, but I reached out to KJ and he to see if he wanted to try again. And he did. And he said, Hey, what do you think about my 17 year old daughter being on our team? And I was like, if she does all the training, that'd be awesome. So then we recruited another guy from the internet and uh, set about doing training trips and practicing and then we were, so that was in 2019 and then we were going to do a 2020 attempt. And then the coronavirus came and, uh, totally scuttled our plans. Cause at that yeah. time there was stay at home orders, lockdown orders, mm -hmm. and KJ wanted to still go in 2020, I think for a number of fair reasons. And he felt like I was breaking our, my agreement that I had made to go in 2020. And I said, yes, but I'm opting, I'm doing the global pandemic special clause here that yes. I, you know, couldn't have anticipated. Um, so we had a falling out, unfortunately, and he wanted to still go in 2020. He, he tried to put together a team and he couldn't. So then we actually had rival teams in 2021. Nice. And and I think the competition made made his team better and made my team better because we were inspired. We were like, we got to we have to be better than them. And as part of their sneaky strategy, they they tried to leave two weeks before they did leave two weeks before us. So I should explain there's this whole thing where. Basically, you want to leave as early in the spring as possible because the odds are you'll have higher water, which is faster water. But you can't leave until the ice melts on Lake Winnebagoshish in northern Minnesota, mm -hmm. and it doesn't melt on average until like April 23rd or 25th or something. Okay. But in any given year, it might melt in March or it might melt in late May. So ideally, you'd have all the time in the world and you just leave the day after the ice goes out. But we, my strategy was to rely on a very robust support crew and all these volunteers. And so we had a very specific window. So yeah. we were always saying we're going to leave May 3rd, May 3rd, May 3rd. Well, in 2021, they had more flexibility because they didn't have as robust of a support crew in part, but they just had a different approach. They left two weeks before us. They set the new record. They, they had, the record had stood from 2003 to 2021 when they broke it. They broke it by almost eight hours. And then we set off two weeks later. And by the time we got to Iowa, we were like five hours behind their pace. Then we switched up our strategy so that we would actually be sleeping more, which was kind of counterintuitive. We slept more and then we started gaining on them two hours a day. By the time we got to Louisiana, we had a seven hour lead over their record and we were optimistic. But there was a tropical depression in the Gulf that spun up 30 mile an hour headwinds for days. And we were battling and battling and battling and losing time. And as we were approaching New Orleans, our lead had dropped from seven hours all the way down to a tie. And the waves got so big that uh, just around midnight, they overtook the canoe. We called the support boat over. We were trying to figure out what to do. And it literally sank out from under us. Wow. The, the waves were so bad, we couldn't rescue the canoe. We were like, just let it go. And the, the little houseboat we were on that served as our support boat that was captained by a very experienced pilot who'd sailed ships all over the world he could not even pilot that thing to the nearest boat ramp that was 10 miles away because the 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 seas or the wow. river was was so dangerous so he ditched out on a little piece of sand the only piece of sand next to an alligator swamp 
in between chemical plants. And we spent the night there and finally got off the river the next day. Man, you know? that's crazy. Okay. So, um, because they left two weeks before you, they essentially, they were almost done when you guys were getting started. And so right. did you know that they had set the new record, like essentially well, when you were, when you were getting started? A hundred percent we did because they used the same tracking system that we did that had a public feed. So they, they pinned their location was pinned every two minutes. So I don't know that they realized this, but one advantage we had because they left two weeks earlier than we did, we could see exactly how much time they were spending on shore. Mm. And we knew that we could spend less time. That was, that was, we weren't really any faster than them. We had a little lower water levels, but we spent significantly less time on shore. And that, so we exploited that and, and almost, almost yeah. broke their record. Yeah. But you told me the first time that we spoke that, that part of this thing is yes, it, there's an athletic ability involved, but a lot of this whole thing, in addition to the teamwork is luck. Right. And, and we, yeah, we, we encountered that this year. So, you know, with climate change, everything is more variable and that includes the river water levels in the Mississippi river, more unpredictable, more floods, more droughts. And so like last fall, like just even just a year ago, the levels in the Mississippi River were dropping, dropping, dropping. And last fall, they were so low, they were, they were, barges weren't able to go. There's this place called uh, Tower Rock, I think it's called. It's this really cool rock formation in the river, and people were able to walk out to it, which you normally can't do in Missouri. And uh, everybody was like, oh my God, you guys are going to be totally screwed. And I was like, I'm looking at the historical record, and I'm like, it is often in flood stage in a spring following a drought winter. So we can't draw any conclusions. And then sure enough, it was like record, like record high water levels for us for our attempt this past May in Minnesota and Iowa. We had just unbelievably, wonderfully high, fast water. So, and then the three things you have to get lucky are, you have to get lucky with the weather, especially the wind. You don't want to deal with a ton of headwinds and you don't want to deal with lightning storms. And we got very lucky on that score. And then you have to get lucky with lock waiting times because you got to go through 29 locks and the barges yeah. have priority. So sometimes yeah. you have to wait for hours. And then the third thing is the water levels. And we got very lucky for the first half of the river. We had great water. The second half we had decent to even not, like it's definitely not ideal because when the Ohio River joins the Mississippi, it doubles the flow. And so if to get lucky there, you get a big push from the Ohio, which is what happened in 2003. We did not have that. So we built our lead in the first half of the trip, and then we just held on for dear life the second half. I mean, the weather knocked you out in 2021. And, uh, you know, you guys must have been devastated. Like, what did it feel like? And and did that fuel you? And, and how did we get from that in 2021 to trying again in 2023? Yeah, well, what's crazy is I had a totally different team this time. So as soon as, like, it was disappointing, but I also just right away, I knew I was, I wanted to try again. And I actually made the decision within a few weeks, you know, people, people were like, you can't be talking about that this quickly. Like that's too soon. We're still mourning, you know, but I was like, I, I want to try again. And so it was, it was sort of devastating, I guess, but I'll, I still had the fire burning. So I guess that sort of overshadowed any disappointment was like, I want to try this again. Now, had we failed this time, I don't think there was any fire left. And you have to, you have to feel that fire to do something like this. You, for, you have to have the passion to do it for sure. Otherwise it'll never happen. But 2021 yeah. essentially ended up being like a, a practice run for you. Totally, totally. And we learned a ton. And that team was very strong. My teammates were really strong. My teammates this time all had better paddling resumes for long distance races. Um, so on paper, they were better. But in retrospect, I'm not sure that they were, they were, they had better resumes. They were great guys. We got along really, really well. Um, but the first team was also great, you know, and we just really just didn't, we just got unlucky. So it was on the shoulders of the first team that this, that the record was set in this most recent attempt for sure. Yeah. So this is where the, you know, there's the challenge aspect and then there's the persistence aspect. And, uh, in, in 2023, you decided you're going to go for it again. Like we're going to keep going until we get this thing. Well, I want to talk about the team. How did you pull this team together? Yeah. So the, the team for 2023. So when, when, when it didn't happen in 2020, when the attempt didn't happen, uh, we signed up for this race in Missouri called the, the Missouri River 340. And it's just this remarkable 
It's, it's an absolutely remarkable event. And actually, the guy who started that race some 15 or 16 years ago, his name is Scott Mansker. And he had a dream. And the first year they did this race, it's on the Missouri River across the state of Missouri. The first year they did it, they had under 10 people. And now they have like a thousand people that do it. And it's like this beautiful grassroots. It's not a corporate feeling event. It's it's a community feeling event. And there's like half the field has done it before. And they're coming back and doing it year after year. And they they organize their whole exercise plan for the whole year around this race. And it gets them out having this big goal. This is what I experienced too, is having this big goal gets me out paddling way more than I ever would have. Like, oh, I got to go paddling today because I'm training for this thing. And so we I, we went and did this 340 mile race and it was so inspiring to see a thousand people out on this river having fun. And much like a marathon, everybody has their own goal. Like mm -hmm. only 10% of the field is probably competitive to win anything, right? So other people are like, well, I'm just going to get under 60 hours or I'm going to get under 50 hours or I'm going to get under 40 hours. And uh, you got people doing it with their kids, people doing it in aluminum canoes, pedal kayaks, stand-up paddle boards, very expensive boats, very cheap boats, homemade boats, just incredible. And then, and then I went, uh, the guy I was, one of the guys that was on my four-person team for that event asked me if I would paddle the Alabama 650 with him, which is an even way more crazy paddle race. And these ultra-long-distance paddle races are a very niche world. You know, there's yeah. not a, this is a very niche world. But that race was extraordinary. And um, the guys that held the record in the great Alabama 650, Paul Cox and Joe Mann, I met them and I just immediately thought, okay, th they, to me, they epitomized for me this example of people who are very athletic, but also have great senses of humor and aren't overly competitive. And they're genuinely kind, open yeah. people who can talk about their feelings and have some vulnerability and can really exemplify the kind of teamwork that it takes to succeed in a, in an ultra distance endurance event right, right away. It was just clear these, like these guys. And I had actually asked them to be on the 2021 team and they couldn't do it because they plan out their racing calendars years in advance. But when things fell through, I asked them, could you do it in 2023? And by then they knew, cause many people had followed along that, you know, I had a good resume then like, yeah. Oh, this guy, this guy now has almost yep. set this record. And so they committed. And then Joe Mann was kind of the key to this whole thing because he then suggested that the fourth person be Wally Ruderich, who he knew from the racing world. And then eventually for our backup paddler, he suggested Judd Steinbach Steinbach. And as it ended up, uh, for various personal reasons, Joe had to switch spots. So Judd became on the team and Joe took the backup spot, but uh, that's how the new team came together. Yeah. Now this is an all-star team. These are, these are very, very strong and qualified paddlers. This was a team that was going to get this thing done. Um, but one of the things that you talked about when we spoke last time and, and part of, you know, making this thing work was the connection, just sort of the camaraderie and the connection. Can you talk about that? I think we all came to it with the, these are the kind of guys that were on the team that are uh, they're, they're very experienced, very good athletes, but they all have pretty well-rounded lives and they've all, they're all open about different sort of adversity that they've had either in personally or in their family. So they're not, they're not relying just on testosterone. You know, they, they like, even though they've got that in spades, you know, so, um, I think they all brought that to the table and, you know, and then we did bond through some of the training trips that we went on and learned how to work together as a team and learned how to lift each other up. But the ability to be able to recognize when another guy needs a hand or to recognize in yourself that you need a break and not be too macho about it, you know, was just really important. Yeah. So, something tells me, Scott, that this wasn't just like you just said, a testosterone fueled, like intense race. Something tells me you guys had a blast. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I will say uh, it is a dangerous, it's genuinely dangerous. So we totally had a blast and it's rare that you can relax completely because uh, these barges, especially at night are sort of terrifying. And, and we did have, we had lots of stressful moments, but I think our sense of humor and our sense of camaraderie brought us through. And in a way, you know, it's sort of fun. It's sort of fun to overcome those challenges when they're yeah, for sure. I'm not over, if, overly terrifying. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering if you could share some of those adversities. Oh man. I mean, there's so many of them, you know, we, we had planned to go on May 3rd, but the ice was persistent this spring. And so 
we ended up delaying to May 7th and then the ice was still there. So we ended up delaying till May 10th and we could not delay any longer. And that was all stressful, but it allowed us and the huge support crew that had gathered at my wife's uncle's cabin, which just happens to be located about 100 miles from the whole first, or about 70 miles from the entire first 350 miles of the river, like right in the center, the river goes like this around his cabin. So they, the support crew could base out of there for the first few days. So we're all at this cabin and we're just like, we were ready to go on the 7th. And then we had to delay until the 10th. And that ex, those extra days actually served us really well because we were way more ready by the time the 10th came around. And then thank God the ice went out just in time. So we had to overcome all that stress. And then, you know, we get to Lake Winnebagoshish. It's a 14 mile crossing. It's only 30 feet deep. The waves kick up. It's it, People have died on that lake. Many people have died trying to cross that lake. And we had glass water for the first two thirds of it, but then the waves kicked up and, you know, the ice went out the day before the water's freezing cold. And, uh, we, we were taking water over the gunnels, not very much. So, I, you know, were we really in danger of losing our lives? No, but we were closer than we wanted to be. I mean, just, you know, we're, we go from like, everything's great. And then, okay, no more having fun. Like we got to get off this lake in one piece here, you know? And then, you know, we had about 30 hours of rain around the Twin Cities and we were cold and wet and miserable. And um, we actually, figured out to, that we had a lead at that point and we stopped at the Treasure Island Resort and Casino, which is a native run casino, a Dakota run uh, casino. And I, I didn't realize they have their own marina that's in a backwater. So if you leave the main channel of the river, like we, we left the, the main channel, we went in there, jumped in their showers and got right back on, which is just fun. Nice. And yeah. And then we get to Lake Pepin, which is one of the other large lakes the river flows through. And we had unrelenting headwinds for that whole five hours. And I was in the bow, which is your engine. And like, nor the other guys are more athletic. They they should have been in in the bow, but I was in the bow, so I got to be the engine, which was fun, but also stressful. I had waves crashing over my face and chest every few minutes for five hours, and I remember at one point I was like, "Guys, can we just stop on shore quick and I could take a leak?" And they were like, "No," and I'm like, "Oh," <laughs> and then I remembered that okay, I can set my paddle down and take a leak in the canoe, um, even though these conditions are extreme. Yeah. They can handle like. Normally that's not a problem, but in these three foot, four foot waves, it didn't feel like I could do that, but I actually could. Uh, so that was probably the most physically demanding part of the trip for me. Um, and then it got, we had a night of fog that was incredibly difficult to deal with. And we had a scary time at lock 15 and these really heavy currents that threatened to pull us through the dam. Um, and then we had some incidents with barges that were somewhat close calls and other times of headwinds and Lots of things. And, and I'm, I'm kind of I'm envisioning the mental side of this. Like to, to what extent did, was, did fear and doubt come into play at all for you? Yeah, I have a distinct memory of late one night. The sun, well, not that late. It was like 10 o'clock at night. It was dark and the wind was whipping and there was barges around. And we had two support boats with us that really helped a lot because they could communicate with the barges and the locks and help keep us safe. And it was time for us to find a place to land on shore and switch switch positions in the canoe. And we ended up on some island and the wind is roaring and the support boats are stressed out because they, they're not sure they can get into this island because it's a little too shallow. So we're trying to help them. And everybody's just totally exhausted. Sleep deprivation is probably the hardest part of the whole trip. And uh, I'm looking at it and I'm just like, I don't know that we can get off this island. The waves are so big and everything, everything just felt like really stressful in that moment. And it was 15, 20 minutes. We're trying to figure out what's going on. And like, some of the guys are like, we need to just, we need to take a break on this island. Other guys are like getting pissed. Like we need to get back on that river right now. Cause there, there was tension at times yeah. between more, more aggressive perspectives and more safety perspectives. Sure. Right. And in that, that was one of the acute moments for me. And we just got lucky the wind died back a little bit and we all got back on the river and it was, it was okay. But there was lots of times like that where you could feel some tension starting to develop amongst the guys. Yeah. yeah. And, and how about the confidence side? Like, you know, how much of that journey were you dialed into hitting the goal and breaking the record? Well, fortunately, for, fortunately, my teammates and I were all, I picked the right guys. I mean, I'm the kind of guy that once I set a goal, it never even occurs to me to quit. Like it just, it's like not an option. I just, 
I just, I don't, I incapable of that, you know? Yeah. So, uh, and these guys were the same way. So there was just never any question. Yeah. I love that. All right. Well, so, so yeah. let's, let's fast forward to the end of the, you know, the, 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 the 2300th mile, right. Um, and you're coming home and you're getting ready to, to cross the finish. Can you talk us through that? What was that like? It was so much more extraordinary than I had ever imagined. Our support team, which was like 17 people or something on shore, and then these six more people on these support boats, you know, we hadn't seen the shore crew much at all for days because we'd just been dealing with the boats. And so we missed them and they missed us. And we're south south of New Orleans. The river turns back into wilderness during the Delta. So it's really a unique environment. And the, the sun went down and... Uh, the support team really wanted to charter a boat so they could be there at mile marker zero, which is about 100 miles south of New Orleans. It's 20 miles south of Venice, 20 miles south of the furthest southernmost point you can drive to. So the only way anybody could join us at mile marker zero was going to be on a boat. And they they were trying to make arrangements and they called up the commercial fishing places and stuff. Can we get a boat? Can we get a boat? No, you can't get a boat. It's the first day of red snapper fishing season. They're all booked. But what happened is everybody took their boats out and all caught their limit during the daylight hours and the boats came back and they said, we, we got a boat. So they chartered a boat and they put like 45 friends and family and support crew on this boat. And there they joined us like two or three hours before the end. And we couldn't see them because it's dark, but we could hear them cheering. And without us even talking about it, all four of us, once there was about three hours left, it was like being in a wind tunnel hurricane. Like I was in the stern and I was just trying to steer and hold on because the three guys in the front were just like, doosh, 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 you know, and we're all just totally exhausted. But the adrenaline at that point was overwhelming to have 45 people on our left side cheering for us and two or three other support boats, everybody cheering. And it, the river, it's is just terrifying at night. And eventually you learn to understand. And this this attempt, I understood the river so much more even than the first attempt. 3 a.m. in the morning, you've got red lights, green lights, white lights, and can you decide which of those lights are 30 feet away, which are 100 feet away, which are two miles away, which are on shore, and which are barges, and which are bridges? And if you're on, if you spend enough time on the river, you get pretty good at making those discernments, but it takes a long time. And so even at the end of the river, there's equipment in the river for dredging and barging, and there's ocean-going vessels. It's dark. The, the, the team that set the record in 2021, they got sucked out of a side chute in the last 20 miles, another place where bass fishermen have literally died getting sucked out the river because it's like this distributary delta area. They got sucked out and they had so much adrenaline, they were able to pack, paddle back up into the river, which is like totally insane. Wow. And then they got sucked out again and paddled back up again. So we were like, oh my God, we cannot get sucked out any of these side shoots and the, the boats are trying to keep us safe and everybody's on the radios like, go right, look at that green light. You got to know the second green light, you know, and they were cheering and paddling and paddling. And then you get to mile marker zero and it's like this 20 foot high wooden structure with buoys and lights on top. And nobody even talked, like we just pull up next to it and like everyone's screaming and cheering and filming. And we, and it's the middle of the night, like 3 a.m. And we clamber up on top of this and sign the the book up there that's that's someone put up there for anyone to sign and it was all on facebook live and it was just amazing it had to have been completely surreal for you guys completely yeah how, how did emotion play in for you at that point i mean it was just all adrenaline and all just so it was just totally awesome yeah it was such a wonderful way to end the trip it's incredible all right so scott yeah. what was the previous record what was the 2021 record uh, so forever I had the, the 20, the 2003 record in my head. Then I had the 2021 record in my head and now I only have ours, but <laughs> I can tell you our, we set it at 16 days, 20, 20 hours and 16 minutes, 16 days, 20 hours, 16 minutes, which we broke the previous record by 23 hours and 30 minutes. So theirs was 17 days, 20 19 hours and 46 minutes, I think, something like that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you guys just got some news last week that your record is official. So awesome. So, so totally awesome. It is now Guinness official. So if you look up uh, fastest 
paddle or they, Guinness actually uses the word row, which is another whole silly story in and of itself. But if you look up fastest time to row the length of the Mississippi River by a team, you will see pictures and, and stuff and of my team and our names. It's yeah, amazing. Cool. Congratulations. It's such a, it's such a huge thing. I want, I'm curious, what does it mean to you? Like when you kind of reflect back on all of this, this whole story, like your grandfather moving the family to Minnesota 80 to hundred years ago to, to today, like what's changed for you and what does it mean to you? Wow. Um, great question. I mean, to me, it's just incredibly satisfying that I know that I decided to do this and to be able to make it happen is just a tremendous source of confidence for me as somebody who hasn't always had the greatest confidence. Uh, that's, that's the biggest satisfying thing for me. And to, and also to know that we did it using teamwork and using, um, the, the, the support crew filmed a bunch of video and put it on our Facebook page throughout the whole trip. And I think we ended up having tens of thousands of people following along. And I think they followed along because they could tell that everybody was having a good time and was committed to the teamwork aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And when support crew members talked about the trip afterwards, they said it was, it was so incredible to be part of something that was so positive and where people treated each other so well. So if that's the legacy of it, um, that's awesome for me. I think that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Well, that's just a piece of your legacy because you've got some other things that are going on as well. Um, what's next for you and what else do you have going on in the world of paddling? Well, two things. One, we had a documentary film crew come with us on this trip. And so I'm so excited to see what they come up with. The documentary is supposed to come out next spring. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Wilderness Mindset was their name and they worked their tails off getting all the footage and they had dr some drone footage and it's just really neat. Um, so I'm excited about that. But the other thing is that my best friend, Todd Foster and I, who paddled the Hudson Bay in, in 2005, and he was the lead advisor for the record attempts. We started a series of canoe events and kayak events on, excuse me, on the Mississippi River in Minnesota, because we wanted to share sort of the magic of the river. And in particular, the magic of getting out on the river with other people in a boat, you move yourself. And so we've done that two years now, uh, the second weekend in June. And, and we set up all these events. So we've got stuff for everybody from beginners to an ultra endurance race and everything in between. So we've got something for everybody. And it's been very gratifying. The people that have participated in it so far, we had about 200 people from like 15 different states and provinces come this past June. And everybody loves it. Everybody, everybody, you know, the magic that I feel when I'm out on the Mississippi River, it's clear that it's not something just for me, it's for everybody. So it's very gratifying that all these people come and are like, oh yeah, this, this was, I mean, it, I think it's available to you on any river, frankly. I think adventure is available right outside your, your back door, right close to you. You don't have to go to uh, Mount Everest to experience a grand adventure. Um, but the Mississippi River happens to be in my backyard. So it's fun to share the beauty of the river with, with, these, uh, with other people that come from all over. Yeah. Yeah. And and so what I love about this is like I see this as this is something that you're passionate about that that you've gone all in on. You've set the world record for the fastest paddle on the Mississippi River. But this is what the hero's journey is all about because now like you're sharing this passion with other people. And so you've got this event. It sounds like uh you've done it two years. It sounds like it's gonna stick, gonna happen again next year. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and you have a website. Yes, twopaddles.org, twopaddles.org has all the information. And we'd love to have people come to beautiful Minnesota. You know, it's in June and um, it tends to be very beautiful here in June. Not too hot, not too cold. Really. Not yeah, too. and this is the Mississippi River Paddle Weekend. That's right. So, Scott, if people want to find out more about Mississippi Speed Record um, or you, what's the best way for them to do that? There's a couple of ways. If you go to MississippiSpeedRecord.com, we got a ton of information there. That's our website. And then our Facebook page, if you just search for Mississippi Speed Record on Facebook, you'll find it. And what's cool about that is the support team did a lot of Facebook lives every day of the trip. So it was like a television show, a reality television show for 17 days that a lot of people watched. And you can really get to see the different parts of the river and how everything worked. Um, and then twopaddles.org is the website for information about the Mississippi River Paddle Weekend if you want to come paddle with us in, in Minnesota. This is awesome. I love this story so much. And I want to ask you about advice. And one thing that I heard you say was that this trip and setting this record gave you confidence. And then you caveated it by saying as somebody that hasn't always had that confidence. 
So I wonder if you could speak to the people that are feeling that kind of pre-confidence piece where like, man, they're not feeling the confidence. What advice do you have for people that are inspired by what you do, but are kind of in that place where they're lacking the confidence? I think, uh, start small. If you, you know, whatever it is you're trying to do, just start small. You don't have to set a world record. You don't have to go 2000 miles, but, um, you know, start small and grow from there. I mean, that's why when I say it was a five-year project, it's like all these little pieces had to happen over the years to build up to do actually doing it. And then I think the other thing is, you know, nobody really does very well on their own. So find someone who can help you in whatever capacity that is, whether it's a paddle partner or a strategy partner or someone just to encourage you or to talk things through and um, find somebody for whom, I mean, that that's the other big lesson I had to learn is I many times I would feel guilty that all these people were helping me. Like, what have I done to coerce them into helping me? And I, eventually I just had to realize like, they are having fun. They are genuinely enjoying it. This, this is an adventure for them. They are bringing their own expertise and their own passion to this project. And there's nothing wrong with that. So it's it's sort of, you know, it's sort of cheesy, but that old phrase where like, what I don't even know how to say it right, but by letting your light shine, you don't you don't make everybody else's lights cower in the shadows. You invite them all to shine as well and, and make a brighter light together. And it, I think it's sort of a cheesy phrase and yet actually does seem to be true. Um, everybody that was involved with with what I did over the five years really had an enjoyable time and I learned from them and they learned from me and, and, uh, so yeah, that's some advice. And they couldn't have done it without you. You couldn't have done it without them. And together, all of you all have inspired other people, myself included. That's so great. I think that's the beauty of it. So with that, you know, you've lived this epic life paddling and creating this Mississippi river paddle weekend, breaking a world record, like Scott, Hollywood's going to find out about you and they're going to make a movie about you at some point. And I want to know when they do, who's going to be the Hollywood actor that's going to play you in your movie? I choose Matt Damon. Uh, yeah. I've, I've always thought he was a, a, a the intellectual man's action hero. Yeah. Love it. I love <laughs> it. Matt Damon. And what's your movie going to be called? Well, that's harder for me to think about. Uh, I don't know. I This is cheesy. I wrote down, listen to your heart, because none of this would have happened if I hadn't uh, if I hadn't listened to that voice inside that said, you could do this. And what I mean by that is listen to it, acknowledge it, and then actually do it. So who knows what, you know, what is going to be passionate for anybody. It could be, it could be becoming a ballet dancer. It could be becoming an Antarctic explorer. It could be becoming an artist of some kind, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But I think it's making enough space in your life so that you can hear that voice and then paying attention to it when you finally hear it. You are speaking my language. That is what we're all about here at Inspire Campfire. It's about listening to that voice inside that calls us to adventure. Yeah. And having yeah. the courage to act. So listen to your heart starring Matt Damon. I'm going to go see that movie. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yes. awesome. Scott, thank you so much for sharing your story with me today. For those listening, I hope you have been inspired today as much as I have. I hope Scott's story has encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or you need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thank you for listening. Scott, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. 